and welcome here tonight to 5 by 15 and it's my huge pleasure to be here talking to Jess Phillips, the MP for Birmingham Yardley and the best-selling author and outspoken, probably the most outspoken person in Westminster today. I hope that's fair to say. Jess is here to talk about her new book, Everything You Really Need to Know About Politics, My Life as an MP. So I'd first like to say that this is an absolutely compulsive read. I couldn't put it down. And I also thought when I was reading it, why has nobody done this book before? To tell you about the crazy, chaotic, illogical, but absolutely amazing life as an MP. This is uh, the third time Jess has been with us at 5 by 15, and I couldn't be happier to be welcoming her back. So please put your questions in the Q&A box, because we will come to them after about 40 minutes or so, and I know you'll have lots of questions for her. So no further ado, let me introduce bring Jess into the conversation and I actually want to start with something you say right at the end of your book which is when you talk very personally about what politics is and you say politics is essentially the school you go to the hospital that gets you you know gets you when you're ill the doctor you see the dentist you see all the services that we have around ourselves that we take too much for granted I think too often but that in fact is what politics is about isn't it yeah, absolutely. So uh, hello, Rosie, and hello, everybody. Uh, it's lovely to be here. Um, the the I suppose what I'm trying to get across all the way throughout the book is that politics is in everything that we do and say. And often when I go into schools and talk to uh, young people and children in my constituency, trying to get them to fathom that the amount of time they even like their day is decided on some committee in some room in Westminster, literally the hours and minutes that they spend on different things, like their, every, their everything, their whole existence is a, a sort of political act that was decided by people weighing up what was best and what was needed. Um, but also on the doorstep in, in Yardley and wherever I knock doors in the country, you, you, you see people, um, who will say things like, well, uh, you know, I've never claimed anything in my life. And during the pandemic, I hear this a lot, like people for the first time uh, going onto universal credit or, or <laughs> seeking some of the assistance that the government has had, whether it's furlough or some of the business grants. And they're like, oh, it makes me feel uncomfortable. I've never claimed anything in my life. And there is this sort of badge of honour that people wear where they haven't interacted with, whether it's formalized the welfare system is actually what they're talking about and what I will always say in those circumstances is you've been claiming since the moment you were born you have been claiming against the taxpayer and the system that you live in literally as you took your first breath yeah. into this world you will have been there assisted by somebody who was being paid for by your neighbors your family your friends and every step you've taken on any street, the planning of the house that you live in, the absolutely every moment, whether the sort of job that you, you, you was brought to your area, where it doesn't mean taking money out of a cash point that is the taxpayer. And so often, uh, us and them of politics like the people who pay taxes exist over here and the people who take money out of the system exist over here but every single person in the country whether they are completely welfare dependent they are still a taxpayer they will still be playing VAT on almost everything that they buy um, every single person is a taxpayer in the system and every single person is somebody who takes out of the system. There isn't an us and them in that. And every single part of that is divvied up and decided by the people who bother to turn up and fight for it being divvied up and divided more for them, more for their people. Um, and they send people that, to do that to Westminster. And so when people say, well, I don't really understand politics, that's another thing I hear a huge amount of. I just think we've got to totally demystify the idea that politics is legislative and committees and, and things like that. It is everything. It is the first breath you take right up until how you die. It is all, I suppose, cradle to grave, famously said, um, it is all 
a decision um, that is made by somebody. And so you better make sure that you've got the right somebody making that decision. If you want to be born healthy and die dig with dignity, you better hope that there are people in that building that you feel you have power over, that you feel you can engage with, that you feel you can take time to understand exactly what it is, because you, you can't escape it. You cannot escape the politics in your life. And you are both a giver and a taker in every regard. So how old were you when you first made that realization that politics is about everything that's around you? Because most of us don't make that connection. Uh, yeah, I mean, I was given no choice but to make that connection because politics was literally everything that was around me from the moment I first uh, breathed. My family are deeply, deeply political people, and I was born in under Thatcher um, to very, very activist socialist parents. Um, and so uh, the, the, the main memory of my childhood, even from being, I remember like being stuffed into a buggy that was meant to like be for one kid, but there was like four of us in there from Women's Liberation Playgroup, which is where I went to, before I went to school, I was, I went to Women's Liberation Playgroup, which was a playgroup cooperative set up by the women in the local Labour Party because they had wanted to work. And in the 1980s, there was no state funded formalized childcare. I mean, that didn't exist until my own children were born, in fact. Um, and so they had set up this cooperative and even the fruit and vegetables that we ate in our house um, came from uh, this like sort of food cooperative that we were part of where somebody from down our road would all club together and somebody from down our road would would go out each week to the market and then give out this food. I mean now very very middle class people are paying an absolute arm and a leg for this this service that that basically Ron from down the road used to do on my street many years ago so everything and everything that we did so all the bonfire parties that we went to all the everything in our life was organized by a collective of people seeking to work as a community to improve things um, and so I think I was raised to believe in like the idea of a common endeavor and the, but not just like these days you, people will talk about socialism uh, until they're blue in the face and there's clicktivism and things but we actually lived in a in an almost communal manner and so the idea that our lives were affected by the the the, the efforts and endeavors of other people was made very, very, very clear to me from a very young age. And did you grow up in an era where your parents would make the link back from what was going on, the four of you in a buggy, back to Mrs Thatcher? Oh, literally, everything was Mrs Thatcher's fault though, to be fair, I think she probably copped the blame for things that she had almost nothing to do with. Um, but oh, absolutely, so we were, my uh, my nan used to come round to my house on a Thursday and do, because my mum worked and, and do, do the ironing. I'm not sure my mum ever asked her to, I think my nan just really liked ironing and my granddad would cut the lawn. It's a sort of, I like to think that they were given a slight sideways glance to my working parents as if they were growing up in squalor because they had to go to work um, but um, the yeah the and I would watch PMQs with my nan sat at my nan's feet while she ironed and peeled potatoes like a sort of 1950s woman uh, and the uh, it was always it was all, we were always and at dinner time we would sit around and talk literally about the politics of the day from when I was a tiny kid and and when we were in those boogies we were on the miners marches we were on general strikes we were taking always CND on our faces literally the amount of face paint I have uh, the amount of bomb banning I was uh, forced into as a child without any agency uh, we were releasing balloons but it was always linked with what we were doing and why it was a failure in politics for women, for example, and why uh, there was a failure in politics in education or and what, you know, it was always linked back uh, from to, to the that big house where I now work. And had your parents ever, I mean, you, you obviously became an MP, but did you think it was something your mother would ever have thought about? Or how did, did it become your generation that was able to take it on? Yeah, I think it was a generational thing. Now, the, the woman, Jane Slowey, who was one of my mum's friends, she stood, I think, in the 1992 um, general election for the seat that we lived in. 
um, but didn't win. It was Tory. I mean, it seems shocking now that that seat was ever Tory. Um, Birmingham has definitely uh, taken. It used to be bell, much more bellwether than it is now. Um, but so I, I knew somebody. So I, I, I had campaigned and done leafleting and put up posters for a woman I knew whose children were in my class, um, who who was on the council and was the, but not my mum and dad. Funnily enough, they never. They never were interested in formalised roles within politics themselves, not even like at a sort of CLP constituency Labour Party level. They were they were they were the workarounds. They were the people who housed the meetings and, you know, but at the BAPs and organised the posters to be kept in our garage, which, you know, I'd say almost all of the 1980s Labour posters are still in my dad's garage because they may come in useful one day. Um, but no, that. My mum was a, you know, she went on to be quite uh, eminent within the health service um, and she advised both Tory and Labour um, uh, health secretaries, in fact, gave Andy Burnham his first job in health. Uh, my mum did and he's always got lovely things to say about her but no she was not I don't think she ever considered taking on a formalised role ever uh, the, the only time I she died before I was even elected onto the council but I remember her saying to me when I said I was thinking of maybe standing for the council in Birmingham and she said the thing is Babby is it won't be hard to shine on Birmingham City Council so how, tell us about your journey to becoming an MP, because, you know, from you, you write a lot about how much money you had to raise, how difficult mm -hmm. it was. It seems like an absolutely, when you lay it out like that, a pretty impossible journey for someone to undertake. I mean, not to mention the fact yeah. you have to stop work for all that time when you yeah. yeah, it is really, really hard. And I think if I had been as um, aware before I made the decision to do it, uh, I, I, I might have paused, I, I, I would still have done it without question, but I might have paused for thought for a little bit longer um, to think about the risk to my family and my finances without question. So um, when I, uh, it was just after um, my mum had died and I, I, I absolutely put this down to both a homage to her life um, as a political animal, but also just, you know, I had two kids and I just lost my mum. I wasn't even 30 yet. And you, I just, I have always, as a coping mechanism for anything, thrown myself into being busy, almost hyperactive to the point of um, manic. Uh, I, I think that definitely there are moments of mania in, in my behaviour when I'm trying to cope with something. And so at the time, I had just uh, rejoined the Labour Party um, because having left uh, over the Iraq war, mm -hmm. um, but I had just rejoined the Labour Party to vote in the 2010 leadership um, election. And within months of rejoining the Labour Party, the Labour Party was sending out, Ed Miliband had this whole scheme about trying to get uh, more, uh, for want of a better word, ordinary people, because most people in Westminster are quite ordinary, actually. The, you know, the, there are outliers, but most of us are ordinary people. But the idea of not ending the year, the era of slick politics, of going to Oxford to do PPE and then going on to be a, spa, a special advisor and then moving on to become a member of parliament. There was this sort of desire to have people who'd had ordinary jobs and were working in their communities, community organising. And just uh, before my mum had died, I'd been a victim of uh, some serious arson attacks on my streets. So there were terrible antisocial behaviour and there were over a period of months, lots of cars had been set on fire in my street. And I had seen my community falling apart with fear and aggression towards each other and it was making them turn on each other and so I organised a series of big events and street parties to try and make them feel better about where we live and the Labour Party spotted it and got in touch with me and said would you go on this future candidates programme that Ed uh, Miliband has set up um, because we want people like you. I'd not been to a meeting the first Labour Party meeting I went to in 20 years was the selection meeting where I was selected to be on the council so, um, the, yeah, I was not like, you know, every day being an activist at the time, but I was a community um, activist without question. And so they really approached me. And then I just thought, oh, well, yeah, maybe I'll, 
I'll, I'll try and become a member of parliament then like this actually sort of became like a sort of career progression of like oh actually this is something that I could do and these people are giving me permission and seeking me out um, and so I took the decision quite lightly and then as I detail in the book I was elected back, back then was in the first and only time that the fixed term parliament act actually ever worked so the liberal democrats were in coalition with the conservatives and they set up the fixed term parliaments that's essentially to protect them from this con this becoming uh, an unstable government um and so i was i was uh, selected two and a half years out from the election actually happening without really any realization that this would mean huge detriment to my family's finances my husband had to stop being a night shift worker and drop like £10,000 a year in his salary over two and a half years. So you're already looking at £30,000 because he couldn't work a night shift anymore because I had to work in the evenings on the campaign and at the weekends on the campaign and his shift pattern didn't allow for our children to be then looked after um, in that period. And so, um, yeah, it's hugely, hugely difficult thing to do. And I think people think that people get paid there's a common misconception, the idea that you're a candidate, that you get paid by your political party. I didn't. I had a job uh, working at Women's Aid um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't have any, the, the Labour Party didn't give me any money to run the campaign. You have to raise that money as well. And so it is an incredibly treacherous thing. And of course, for most women, you are not standing in a safe seat. Most women stand in marginable, winnable seats. Um, and it's why women last less long because their seats are more likely to be marginal. And so I was doing all of that, working every hour God said, with much less money than we had been used to. Like my mortgage cost the same. At the same time, as there was no certainty that I would win the election. In fact, it was 50-50 that I would. And if you if you'd lost, that would have all have been in a sense wasted time, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. And politics needs to have a kick up the bum about what it does with those people because when I stood for election there was a woman who stood in a similarly marginal seat that she didn't win and she she was at, was actually outside of where she lived I was conve I'd be very conveniently in fact I wouldn't have been able to do it had it not been the place where I live without question but that's that's quite uncommon um that she, and she was standing in a seat sort of like 50 miles away from where she lived and so the travel and she had she was a single mom with four kids and she didn't get elected and the party does almost nothing and i'm sure it's the same with all political parties they do almost nothing in cases where candidates have given up their lives it's it's as if it's like an honor for you to stand like you should just be grateful but that does not then breed a politics where anyone can take part and is really really problematic and the likelihood is and in fact in her case she's like i'm never standing again i'm not doing i'm not putting myself through that, my family through that for, for nothing. And whereas, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is how the Conservatives, they send people around the country to stand in like nosebleed seats where they can never win. So most Conservative members of Parliament, it's slightly different in times of a snap general election because you just have to fill the spaces quickly. But most Conservative members of Parliament have stood in a seat that they could never win. I think uh, the, the famous example being uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg standing in like Fife or somewhere in like the Docklands of Glasgow or somewhere like that. That was just it, where you have to pay your dues. But that's fine if you can afford to pay your dues. But I had a job and a, a mortgage and two kids and uh, a husband, you know, it was a manual job. This is not like it's not easy for people, for ordinary people to do that. And which is probably why Tory MPs largely come from the upper classes yes so jumping for, i mean jumping forward a bit so what was your first day in westminster like what did you expect when you arrived in that ramshackled extraordinary building i mean i don't know actually what I, I, I genuinely didn't i don't think i had any expectations of what it would be like um other than historic and it certainly felt like that certainly like you can't believe that you're about to do this but my it's it's phenomenal but I took my children with me um because I it was going to be such a massive life change for them I wanted for them to be part of the transition to so that I mean my youngest son was only five at the time 
Um, and I wanted him to understand why I wasn't going to be there rather than just um, suddenly disappearing for the whole week, every week. Um, and so, and his understanding was, I remember him once I said, do you want to come to a Labour Party meeting? And he'd come along and he, he thought it was a party and he was like, why is there no cake? Uh, so he, he was already disappointed by politics by the age of five. Um, so I... But I remember getting there and you 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 go and this was new in the year that I got there. It certainly didn't exist before. I have no idea how people coped. You go along into one of the rooms in the, the modern bit of parliament and you sit at these different desks and basically get five minutes where somebody says, right, you're basically going to be running your own business. So people don't realise this about members of parliament is that we are small business uh, owners and that the staff that I employ are entirely employed by me they are not employed by parliament i am responsible for their hr it's my responsibility to set up an office nothing gets given to you so i have to set up a constituency office i have to employ the staff i have to make sure that all, all of the different laws are followed around their hr and lots of mps i was lucky i came from being a manager in a place that had 137 staff so i had an idea um, and then you go along to another desk and they're like, here's your security pass, you can go anywhere. Um, and, and, and nobody at any point tells you what your job is. The Labour Party put on some like sort of like, you know, I remember Dennis Skinner giving us a, a lecture in the chamber about how to command the chamber um, and, and, and the kind of things that you, you, you can say. And I remember Heidi Alexander, who was a whip at the time, she sort of, she said maybe go into business questions on a Thursday and you think what's business questions I don't even I literally don't even know what that is um, because it's where you can talk about anything and you'll get used to the pace of the place sit through the sessions but other than that you have you basically invent your job as a member of parliament and you can make it exactly what you you want it to be you can make it nothing you could literally do nothing you could never turn up to parliament you could never hold a surgery in your constituency and there's absolutely nothing that can be done about that until you know next time when you don't get elected unless you're lucky enough to have a safe seat and the people don't mind but you you have no idea and so I went about just creating exactly what I'd come from which was working in the sort of community sector charitable sector and I just went about making my job that again because I knew how to do that Oh, that's that's really interesting. I mean, how many people do you think a do nothing? But also, can you say a bit more about how you have to? I mean, you've got a very strong focus now. Yeah. A very strong profile, which makes you much more powerful. It seems to me yeah. more influential than someone who tries to do a bit of everything and yeah. then has actually no deep knowledge of anything. Yeah. So how do you divvy up the kind of MPs that you see in terms of, uh, you know, how much they do and how? Yeah. They there, there is a certain category there's different categories of MPs there are some who you every single week in Prime Minister's questions back in the days when we were in there somebody will stand up to ask a question because they've been drawn in the lottery to ask the question again I think people think that you know the, that we get to choose who gets to ask the questions we don't it's a total lottery it's like numbers out of a bag and um Every week someone will stand up and you think, I've no idea who that is. I've never seen them before. Um, and it's because they're not a Westminster beast. So there's one category of Member of Parliament that are absolutely chamber animals. They are Westminster beasts and they are in the chamber all the time. And they are they will speak on almost anything that there is to speak about. Um, and there is a real skill in some of that, that they are then being seen by their constituents to be across everything. Like, you know, they've got an opinion on absolutely every, every possible, you know, clicktivism uh, petition that their constituents have said, they will be able to say, I stood up and I spoke in this debate. And so there is this ca that category, and that makes up uh, probably about 25% of members of parliament. They become very, very, deeply ingrained in the place in the in Westminster and in Westminster life and they're the ones in the bar at the end of the day and then I'd say another quarter are about probably have marginal constituencies and just get completely embedded within their constituencies and so you don't see so much of them at Westminster they are just out there talking about potholes 
Liberal Democrats. Uh, <laughs> potholes are huge in my And in fact, there's a chapter in the hot in the book called, you know, people care about potholes. So you just have to suck that up. Um, but the, the, there is those who do that, who become completely and utterly. And at first, I have to say that was my lot in life was to become um, a very, very heavily uh, well-known constituency MP, good at casework, good at responding, have an office that people come, come into, run it like a community centre, because I had a marginal seat. It's, my seat is not marginal now, and the legacy of that continues, but you have to learn to trust other people to be doing a lot of that work for you, and at first you just don't, because especially if you've taken your seat, and my seat wasn't Labour before I had it, and so on election day in 2015, I, I mean, I literally arranged for a lift for a woman in Labour, because I was like, it's going to come down to the last vote, because that's what I thought. And you, it's hard to move on from the psyche of every vote counts. And so whenever anyone comes to you with any requests, you'll be like, yes, I'll do it immediately. I'll do it immediately. Like Anything I can do for you, I'll, you can have my firstborn child, because it's, it's frightening having a marginal seat. Uh, and so it takes quite a long time of being an MP to not have that fear, especially if you're if you're in a marginal seat, which arguably most of them are these days. They flip around. Can I interrupt quickly there? I mean, do you think that not being in a marginal seat makes you a better MP? Does it make you have more abilities? No, to... I think that being in a marginal seat makes you a better MP personally. I think it makes you more responsive. I mean, I think that there are perfectly good MPs who have safe seats and have always had safe seats. But I think that you are likely to be much more responsive to your constituents and the nuances and differences within your constituency, which is essentially a sample of the country. Um, if you are, if you are, if you basically are more frightened of them, uh, I, I want members of parliament to be more weary of their voters than they often are. Um, and so, however, it, you definitely have much more opportunity to um and, and you see it in the di division of staff so we have a budget that will pay for around five or six full-time members of staff and you can see the mps who have safe seats because they have like four members of staff servicing them in london whereas i most of my members of staff are there for my constituents they are based in birmingham doing constituency work doing constituency campaigning, holding on to things in Birmingham, and I have a member of staff in London, whereas you see the Westminster MPs, they put their staff in London and they, they have things like chiefs of staff, which seems wildly like they've watched too much West Wing. Um, but um, they, and they have people write, you know, writing endless questions, parliamentary questions, writing it to be in every debate so that that you can see how that is different now we need both things you need absolute westminster animals the other sort of mp which is i suppose the the sort of mp that i have become um is a campaigning mp with basically uh like uh, the chomp between their their teeth in, in that they have a thing that they went there to do and I suppose so all the work I do around violence against women and girls um, means that you have a clarity of voice on those issues that um, and lots of MPs so that a good example uh, Diana Johnson who is an amazing Westminster MP um, who has done all of the stuff around the um, the the blood uh, contaminated blood crisis that is currently has finally got a, an independent um, review happening of it. So that is, uh, but she just very singularly focused will keep on an issue and she does it with other issues, but she, once she has an issue, you know, politics will bow to her because she doesn't stop. And she is a, she is a really good example of a campaigning MP who can pick up a campaign and push and push and push using both her constituents and Westminster. Um, and, and then you have about 20% who don't do anywhere near as much as they should. Um, often they're the ones who um, end up in the cabinet. <laughs> I'm afraid. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's extremely interesting that, um, that you have that division between people. So for you, you you've now got a a high profile and I was very struck in your book you describe a typical Monday and you describe also waking up and thinking you you use this incredible expression have I committed news yeah it was brilliant I mean have I inadvertently <laughs> sent the wrong tweet done the wrong thing yeah. I have become the news again and you also talk about the feeling of waking up in kind of panic and anxiety totally. as you check 
So what does your, what's your morning like on Monday morning? So on a Monday morning, I will wake up. I, I naturally, I had my children very young, so I naturally uh, have a body clock that wakes me up at around quarter to six in the morning even though my children now don't get up until six o'clock in the evening. Uh, but um, the, yeah, I, ha I, I wake up and I often, especially at the moment, it's slightly better after COVID making our work-life balance considerably more life than work uh, as it, but, and I'm, Parliament is currently in recess. So uh, I have it a little bit less at the moment, although not entirely less. Um, you, especially on a Sunday night or any day that you've been in Westminster, I will wake up and I wake up early and I wake up with a gasp um, of like, oh gosh, what, what, what thing is it going to be today? And it's the same when any phone number that I don't recognise calls me and somebody has called me three times today from a phone number I don't recognise. I just think, oh my God, what is it? What is the thing that I'm going to have to react to? So first, the first thing I do in the morning um, is I will immediately look at my phone to see if there is a million calls. You can always tell when something's going on because you will wake up to, uh, you know, 150 messages and like eight missed calls. But, and you can tell that there is some news going on. And sometimes that news is you, something you have said, something that you've done wrong, um, something that is in your your wheelhouse. Um, and so, you know, on for example, on the day that Sarah Everard was for her body was found, it was literally like carnage uh, for me to wake up to um, of just hundreds of requests on your time, hundreds of requests for comment constantly and you have to very very quickly in the morning when there is something going on you have to very very quickly brief yourself with the facts because you are about to within an hour be in front of a public and you have to have an opinion on you know somebody being murdered in a Saudi Arabian prison that you'd literally never heard of as you went to sleep and so every morning there is the potential for that. And so every morning I wake up to that gasp of what is the thing going to be today? Um, and usually Mondays are the worst. I never sleep on a Sunday night with the, the, the sort of the week at Westminster ahead of you. And then obviously I have to live my, I have to get my children to go to school and things. Although that has got considerably easier as they've got older. Um, and I try to keep a normal pattern of life, like a normal person. I try to sit and drink a cup of coffee with my husband before he goes to work. Um, but nine times out of 10, uh, and it's this awful thing, and loads of MPs who've read the book have said to me, this hit me right in the heart, is that my son will refer to me as Jess, not as mom, because he says I respond to Jess when I'm looking at my phone in the morning and I, I don't respond to mom. And that is like a deeply painful thing for me to realise. But it is the truth. Um, I, I am usually in the mornings just completely and utterly tied to my phone uh, before I will then set off on a train journey uh, to, to go down, because I obviously don't live in London, um, to go down to Westminster, where as soon as you arrive at like midday, until probably 11 o'clock at night on a Tuesday, you are then called upon to be in meeting after meeting and committee after committee. And you never have five minutes to think about the next thing. And that's why we have, have to have people running behind us saying, this thing that you're going to now is about, you know, I don't know, like Malawian orphanages. And you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to be immediately briefed. And you have to try and be an expert on so many things and one thing I learned very early on is that you can't do it there are enough cancers to keep you, you so you when you're first there you are every single sort of cancer will get in touch with you and ask you to be a voice on this specific sort of cancer and even just cancers on their own there is too many for any one member of parliament to become an expert and a campaigner on those things and so you have to learn to say no to things which is very very hard when you're first elected um, and most Mondays I will, and most Tuesdays and Wednesdays while I'm in Westminster, I will be sat in front of people desperate for me to take up their case, 
where ultimately I'm just not going to be able to, whether it's lobbyists uh, around different diseases, different uh, disabilities, whatever it is, there just isn't the space and time to care about everything because as we started by saying, politics is everything. So how do you decide? I mean, how does any MP decide? I mean, you you have a good lots of good anecdotes in the yeah. book about extraordinary things that your constituents ask you. I mean, I love the one the person who wrote into you and said, "Could you tell me what time the post office opens <laughs> on a Saturday?" And you think, heavens! But then you think, well, a people don't know where else to turn, and also yeah. you have this vast expectation that yeah. an MP can set off to London and somehow change, change everything and yeah. it'll all be better because just is a good person yeah expectations management is absolutely everything it is vital for members of parliament and it's actually one of the things i would say is deeply wrong with our current politics is um the desire and, and and it comes about from having to win elections the desire for politicians to stand in front of X building and claim that they had anything to do with building it um, makes people's expectations that you can build something in their constituency that oh well you know they got a children's centre and it's just like okay well let me tell you what that process is that photo that you saw is a lie it's it, it, you know it's it's I suppose you could it's it's definitely true that that got built um, but the idea that you asked for it we delivered it is just a terrible myth that politicians continue to spin without explaining the actual process that you have to go through and that the thing you want has a cost not necessarily a financial cost because any Labour politician worth their so immediately the first question a journalist asks you is how are you going to pay for that um so the 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 it's not even that the cost of not having something else and somebody else not having something else is not something that politicians communicate correctly with the public um, and we're not honest about it um, where we don't we, we we try and promise the moon on a stick in order to win an election and then so with my constituents the line I say almost a hundred times a day when I'm in my constituency office and the constant thing that I try to put into my literature when I'm talking to my constituents is you did this, we did this together. There is an element that you have to do something and I have to do something, but this isn't you ask, I deliver, because that just is just not the reality. But also I say, I'm not gonna guarantee you that I'm going to be able to do anything about this, but I will guarantee you that I will try. And I must say that sentence, it shall be written on my gravestone. I, I try constantly not to promise anything to anyone. I'd much rather under-promise and over-deliver. Um, but, but when it comes to elections, politicians can't help it. The currency, the promised currency, and it's what makes people hate us, is that, oh, you said you were going to do this and then nothing ever happened. You said we'd get a new railway station and nothing has happened. So we have got to stop it because the expectations management is making people hate politics and hate politicians and it just treats people as if they're stupid and they can't listen when you say okay you're absolutely right this is what's wrong with universal credit so I'm going to tell you now that this is going to take me around 10 years to change this and you have to take part in that as well but that's the reality of the thing you've come to talk to me about so we can try and deal with your issue right now but changing it for the future is going to take a huge amount of time. And so much of what I was writing in the book is about how um, change is very, very possible, but we must be realistic about how it actually happens and how long it can take. Um, but that is 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 really, really problematic, is the things that, where people think that I have a, a drawer in my office that's got council houses in it. And maybe there were times where that was the case and there was, <laughs> definitely levels of you know corruption in politics uh where you know where you could like you know tip a wink to somebody and make sure so and so got a council house but this is just simply not the reality for uh, me but people think that when they come to me and say well i'm i've got seven people living in two rooms you know can you get me a house they genuinely come there with the belief because of the way that politics spin their abilities that i can do that and i haven't got a hope in hell
So you tell a wonderful story in the book about you looking after Annie, trying to get a constituents of yours into <laughs> rehab, get her sorted out. And I just read it and I thought, how, how many of your constituents can you do that for? I mean, that was being just the social worker, unpaid <laughs> at that point, out of hours, going around to her house on Saturday evenings. It's a very touching and lovely story. I mean, do you then set up again an expectation? Yeah, I mean, partially, yes. And there are, you can't do it for all cases. Um, however, I suppose what we have to try and do in most cases is set up parameters whereby we are there to support them on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays in the constituency office between these hours. Um, and that's like working in any sort of charitable sector with vulnerable people this is to create a sort of boundary availability so that you don't have expectations management but then there are cases where people's lives don't fit into those boundaries and what may have once been there and been able to be provided for people with mental health problems people um victims of domestic abuse or um just people in any sort of a crisis like you know a woman got in touch with me last week and said my daughter has been on a trolley in your local hospital for four days and she just needs a bed and you know say oh sorry it's five o'clock no we can't help you like you 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 have to learn to judge and nine times out of ten in fact ten times out of ten people who really need your help and support beyond the pale of duty, the, the times when you shouldn't be necessarily doing it and that you might be setting up a poor expectation, 10 times out of 10, those people don't want you to be doing it. They don't want you, they, they, they feel terrible and they are not expecting anything of you and they, they feel bad that you are there. Whereas the people who have lesser problems will be bothering you all the time. Um, I have to say that's definitely true. Um, but you, you, you just have to, and I am well-trained uh, because of my previous experience of working in refuges. I am well-trained in when you know that you, you can go beyond the, the core. And the story about Annie in the, I mean, uh, maybe when I write the, when the paperback comes out, I would have to put some caveat on an explain, explainer on it in that, I, unfortunately, I didn't help her. I wasn't able to help her. And she died of coronavirus. Um, and because she had, she was, she was 43 years old and she died because of, um, because of comorbidities that meant she just couldn't survive it when she got it. And so even when you go beyond the pan, and I will sit in her house on a weekend with her big dog, and even in those circumstances, I can't save people, and I shouldn't, and, and nobody should ever crusade to the point where you think you're some sort of superhero, because I am not a superhero. Um, I'm just trying to be kind, and that's enough. So I suppose that's the parameter. Well, that's a fantastic parameter. And uh, I'm really sorry to hear that because it was a very, it was a very touching story. Um, we've got lots of questions coming in and actually we've been talking for 45 minutes and it's gone by so fast. Um, okay, I'm just going to lobby one last question before we come to the audience, which is just about the current government. Um, I was so cross when the announcement was made for the 3% rise for the nurses and then you find out that it's coming out of the budget and you feel really powerless about something like that and it also feels mean and many other things it's like the removal of the 20 pound uplift in universal credit that's coming down the pipe apparently what do you do Jess as as you to and how do you feel about it and be as rude as you like uh, I mean you feel utterly um, it's like stages of grief, isn't it? It goes through. Initially, you're like, what the fuck? Like, are you joking? And then you, I start to feel, I feel deep aggression, genuinely aggression towards people making decisions like that about the 20 pounds. And I think, are you not seeing the same thing that I'm seeing? 
because and and I, I take to Twitter all the time, and I, I've done it under every uh, government I have served under since becoming a member of Parliament, and asked the minister in question to come and spend a day in my constituency office because I can only assume they're not seeing the same thing that I am seeing. They're not seeing nurses, not just a nurse, a matron on a ward coming into my office on a Friday to get food bank vouchers because her husband is dying of cancer and is no longer able to work and she's coming in with her children and we sit and we lie to the children and we say like oh yeah I always get my food from the food bank and if they are not seeing what I am seeing and then you start to feel utterly powerless and you think how can and then you have to you have to think through calmly what are the things that I can do, or at least try and do, that will hang this on them? What can I do to raise this profile? What story can I tell that is going to hit them and land so that they will realise? And for too long, the Labour Party has not been good enough. And so they dance, the current government will dance around as if they are Teflon. Whereas Marcus Rashford is a perfect example of, so what is it going to take? And it's not necessarily me telling the story or the Labour Party telling the story that I have to think about. I have to think, who is the best messenger? Is it a Tory member of parliament? Is the best messenger to get the 20% uplift stopped? I need to go and talk to some Tory members of parliament who have been elected in seats where I know there will be loads of people who have universal credit. And I have to think through, is my voice going to be the one? Is it the, the user voice that I need to get out there? Is it a famous person? Is it, a, is it, what is it that's going to get this? And what are the levers? What are the parliamentary levers? And so then I will spend my time thinking about, like uh, in the acknowledgements of the book, I, I pay credit to Chris Bryant, who is a member of parliament, who understands parliament um, in a way that I'm never going to bother to try. And so I will ring him and say, what is the thing that we can do? Is it this sort of debate? Is it this sort of vote? Is it this sort of ballot? How do we, you know, what, what, how do we censure this? How do we stop it? And that uh, is it you, that's ultimately what you have to do you go through you know what it's going you know, your anger and aggression and you're publicly very cross and dismissive and then you have to step back and think well what am I actually going to do about this what am I going to do and so that that is the process uh, and, and even if you fail like I failed with Annie even if you fail you you are able to get up every morning and keep failing because at least you tried and people see it and people appreciate it and that's that's all you can do and obviously try and get rid of them <laughs> yeah, there's a number of questions coming in about how we re-engage people with politics um and a couple of people saying you know that your book is really easy to read and um it ought to be more available in schools all of which i absolutely agree with but in a way the whole it seems to me also especially through the pandemic that westminster or the tory government have really liked this they like the mystique they like the feeling yeah we'll take care of it don't worry your little heads about it totally so how do totally. we change that well i mean the 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 truth is is that we have got to um, make politics much more accessible uh, and there is no quick and easy way of doing that obviously i would like to see it taught in in france where my brother is a teacher they teach philosophy which is essentially like you know the sort of uh, philosophy and government as well they teach from like the age of four um and getting kids to be arguing over things and debating things and so i you know obviously i would like to see much much better I hate the term citizenship. I, I don't know why that sort of came about as being the term for it. But politics, <laughs> I, I think politics should be being taught. And uh, certainly in an age where everybody can be a bloody journalist on their phone, the idea of how you campaign and how we interact with the media and what is good and what is harmful and what is right, like the ethics of things. Somebody who speaks a lot about court cases, I balk at the lack of um, understanding of the criminal justice system when people talk about it online it is like oh my god you don't even know anything about courts or anything and so 
But most people in our country don't know that the police don't make the decision on who to charge in a court case, that that is done by the Crime Prosecution Service, and that most people don't know that victims don't have a lawyer because they watch courtroom dramas where people are sat next to lawyers. There is so much about how our society runs and works that people have no idea about. So much, much, much better education. But failing that and failing putting everything on the shoulders of teachers, because I'm also putting on them trying to teach better gender uh, roles, uh, teach against domestic abuse, I'm making them social workers as well. So failing the fact that teachers probably have enough on their plates, we've all got to, and anyone who cares about this and cares about changing the way that our politics works, which lots and lots of people do, you have to care about it in an active way and you have to go out and encourage people to take part, not just in voting, but like doing something down your street. The reason I'm a member of parliament is because there was a problem on my street and I saw that the people were getting fractious and opting out, wanting to move away. You have to take an active role in going and speaking to somebody else and saying, how about we try and do something about this and let's try and change something. Um, and, and it is on politicians. I mean, maybe we need much better regulations about the kind of things you can and can't say. The kind of thing, like the lies that get told, not just actual lies that that's, everybody knows that about politics. The way things get spun, the way that money will be re-announced over and over and over and over again a million times. It's just like it's the same money and nobody's going to see a change on their street and they're going to think, oh why has nothing changed when you told me you were spending all of my money on it and that is it so you know maybe there needs to be uh, considerably better rules in public life but at the moment we're smashing them all so uh, there are a lot of questions one from howard one from others from various people talking about relationships with the opposition and there's a there's a line in your book yeah. where you say um you know People go, to, well, most people go to Westminster intending to do good and intending to try yeah. to change the world. It's just not always how I see it. Yeah. So there is a sort of feeling in, in an awful lot of, I mean, I know lots of Tory MPs too, and they want to get things right. So Absolutely. how much do you work together and how much can you work together? And is our two-party system always sort of fated to shove people apart? It, it's funny because since I'm not a backbencher anymore, I find it much harder to get Tories to do the things that I wanted them to do. So most of the domestic abuse bill, you know, half of it I drafted in with the ministers sat in a room uh, working with them day and night because they recognised my expertise and I wasn't a threat because I wasn't up at the dispatch box. Um, but we work together all the time. Um, and no one ever sees anything but the combat moments. Most of the stuff that comes out of Parliament comes from committees where you are cross-party and you are working to scrutinise the government together. Uh, Tories are considerably more powerful when they try and scrutinise their own government because it, it hurts much, much more for them to be doing it. Um, and but yeah, we work together all the time. And 90%, I say in the book, 90% of people went there to do good. We just think that there is a different route. But in lots of cases, we think that there is the same route. Um, and we think that we think we all, anyone who is a constituency MP, for example, will, if you say the words child support agency to them, doesn't matter how rich the people are in their area or how much farming they've got compared to urban, they will all be like, oh, the child support agency is just such a nightmare. And uh, because they're working with their constituents. And so you can work with them on all sorts of issues that where you have absolutely got common cause and that aren't deeply ideologically political. Um, that, that are just about how things work and whether they work well or not. Uh, and on those things, we work together all the time. Um, I wish that more people could see that actually, if you come into Portcullis House, we are all sat around the same tables. We are all with the journalists as well. We are all there drinking coffee at the same coffee bar with you know, policemen with automatic weapons stood next to you asking for a, you know, a skinny oak milk latte. And I think that gun does not suit that drink. Um, and, you, you know, we are all with the staff at Westminster as well. We are all just talking to each other, but no one ever sees any of that. It doesn't make a good story. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's true. So there's a question um, here from someone called Phil about why you think that Boris still has, I know we should stop calling him Boris and call him favorable rating. I think. Um, I think that people have, uh, Boris Johnson is a man who plays the expectation game incredibly well in that people have quite low expectations of him. And until there is, uh, that people feel really, really confident in the alternative, um, the sort of aim low and you'll never be disappointed and better the devil you know. And people feel like they know him, even though it is my experience that the man of Boris Johnson presents to be in all my experiences of knowing him and meeting him is nothing at all like his public persona. Nothing at all. He is not a confident man. He is a shy and scared man. Whenever, maybe it's just me, but he cannot look me in the eye. Um, he is, he, he, I mean, they're right. His public persona of being ill-prepared is accurate. Um, but the, the reason that I think he's popular is because he's positive. Mm. I think he's a positive really, character. Really 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 good point that it's about I can do things and that's yeah. what we all want to believe yeah. um, we're really coming up against the time now so I have one last question for you which is about the um what happened um when 35 Tories failed to obey the whip over the reduction in the overseas aid budget and what actually happens in Westminster when that's quite a sizable amount that decided yeah. to stand their ground and I suppose I'm obviously hoping that a larger number would stand their ground over the reduction of the universal credit. But do they get into trouble? I mean, what happens? Um, well, that went through a number of different stages. So there was more of them and there was enough to lose the vote. And so Boris Johnson uh, and his, you know, the, the whips and the, the, the ministers went around basically. So it's a good tactic, actually, threatening and talking about how to uh, you're not going to vote with your government or muting it, making, you know, floating the idea means that the government will come to you and they do it with all sides, actually. They will come to you with basically a rubbish version of what you're saying and try and basically get you over the line with the rubbish thing. And a lot of members of parliament, once they've threatened to disobey the whip, they are desperately trying to find because they wanted to, because they were getting pressure from their constituents or whatever to not vote for it. They want something. They will do anything to find a way to say, look, I'm, I, look, I, I'm really moral, but actually uh, the government have offered this and we've got to be reasonable. And they do this and you know that they would just flip in a second. They were desperate not to break the whip because they're considered, you know, the greasy pole of we Westminster. They want a job eventually. Um, and in fact, in that case, he actually offered jobs out to people. So, um, but the, the 35 who stood their ground, um, the, I, I I think that, you know, they won't necessarily get in trouble. They'll probably get a bollocking for their weapon. You get put on terrible nosebleed committees at like seven in the morning. That's the kind of thing that happens. Or you'll get a crappy office given out to you. If you disobey the whip, you'll get, you know, it's like, it's like children, isn't it? It's terrible. It's like, if you don't tidy your room, you can't have a pudding. It's a bit like that. Um, and so those things will have happened and they won't be considered for, but lots of them are like grand arms, aren't they? They're like Andrew Mitchell, who's my neighbouring MP, uh, Tory MP. Uh, in uh, he wouldn't thank me for saying Birmingham certain coalfields because he calls it the royal town um, but um, he you know this he really cared about this and and he can't be bought because he's in the sort of latter days of his career he's not bothered about what they can offer him he's not interested he doesn't want it um, and those people are dangerous <laughs> and so you've got to try and find ways to brief against them so what happens is you'll start seeing newspaper stories spiked about people so it won't necessarily be that they get shouted at there, but there's got to be some way of undermining them. And so a huge amount of that goes on. Like, oh, I'll tell you a story about so-and-so. And you'll start to see people getting pressured that way. Um, but Someone on the else, 20th... Um, just came in and said, yes, Boris is shy and scared. And I think that is probably true. Yeah. Um, Jess, thank you so much. No
is really, really wonderful. We have some signed copies at Newham Books. So do, uh, the, the info is in the chat box. Do come online and see them. Thank you all very, very much. We've had lots of you joining us and I know lots more will listen to it online. And join us again at 5 by 15 with Neil Gaiman coming on on September. <laughs> we send you a ticket. Yeah, I love him. Be in, in conversation with Susanna Clark. So, but just you've been fantastic. I wish all oh, of you were like you. It's really inspirational. And um, yeah, let's get let's get involved, everybody. Um, so thank you, thank you very much, and enjoy the rest of your summer and have a good time in Yorkshire, Jess. Yay. Have a good holiday. Yay, take care. Bye-bye. See ya.